Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, Ezra, chapter 9, the conclusion. Principle after principle, application after application just erupts out of Ezra chapters 9 and 10, and they are surprisingly illustrative of how modern believers, Christian and Messianic, are to relate to God's laws and commandments. I'm asked that question almost daily. How do we relate to God's laws and commandments in our time? Ezra's era was almost a millennia apart from when God gave Moses the law. So Jewish society in 450 B.C., Ezra's era, was as radically different from the days of the Egyptian exodus as Western society is today from the days of the Crusades. Thus it was a true challenge, even Bible times, to properly apply the law to each successive generation almost as it as much as it is for us today in the 21st century. So let's take a few minutes to gain some perspective for a better comparison between the issue of following God's laws and commandments in the days of Ezra versus how that same issue confronts us in modern times. Now because of their exile to Babylon and their dramatically changed conditions that the Jews endured, they soon recognized that scrupulously following the Torah up in Babylon was not only impractical, it was impossible. It was impossible, not only from the standpoint that about a third of the Law of Moses dealt with ritual issues that required a temple and a priesthood, now defunct, but also that other commandments concern such matters as treatment of the land itself. And some of this only applied to the promised land, not any land. Certain important elements of kosher eating depended on how the land was treated, otherwise it defiled the food that grew on it. The Sabbath year cycle, for instance, that gave a year's rest to the land played an important role in the ritual purity of the land which then transferred to the food supply that it produced. But from a practical viewpoint there was no way to observe the Sabbath year outside of Judah in a pagan controlled culture. And various other commandments made it crystal clear it didn't matter where the Jews were located. They were to follow those regulations regardless. Quite a predicament. So up in Babylon, the Torah laws were essentially suspended. Not by the Lord, but by those who were supposed to teach them and abide by them. There is no record of this suspension being formal, Rather, it resulted from a gradual adapting of the exiles to their circumstances and their surroundings. As for most Jews, it became their new permanent home. And that adapting essentially meant the taking up of new religious practices, which was the earliest beginnings of Judaism. 
Back in Judah, the relatively few Jews that were allowed by Nebuchadnezzar to stay there as caretakers also adapted to their new reality. And they did so by accepting and incorporating the ways of the foreign power that ruled over them and also the lifestyles and the religions of the many foreigners who moved into Judah to take advantage of the situation, including creating blended families of Gentiles and Jews. There's no indication that the Jews of the Babylonian and Persian diaspora or the Jews who had remained in Judah had a truly conscious sense of intending to fall away from the Torah in order to create a new Jewish religion. It just happened. It just happened in tiny, unnoticeable increments. Day by day. The classic frog in the kettle syndrome. Now we saw this reality, the same reality, play out in the book of Esther. Exiles living in Persia. Whereby God and prayer aren't mentioned even once. That's astounding. There we don't hear of biblical festivals. Sabbath keeping. Any other observances of the daily Torah commandments or the lifestyle prescribed by God's laws. So the Jews of the diaspora came back to Judah with an entirely new outlook on what constituted their Jewish religion. The first wave of exiles to return, led by Zerubbabel, came with that mindset. Even though they also looked zealously towards rebuilding the temple and beginning beginning the Torah rituals again. Did their return to Judah reflect a great desire to reform their religion and recover God's word while shunning the ways of early Judaism that had been created up in Babylon? Or was it the intent to merely add some especially precious Torah-ordained worship elements back into their religious practices? Sacrificing, for example that they had a historical memory of and they longed to restart those rituals. No doubt it was a mixed bag. So as we pick up with Ezra's return, some 80 years after the first wave of Jewish returnees led by Zerubbabel, we find him coming to Jerusalem for the express purpose of reforming whatever was now the official religion of the Jews, one hitch with with which he greatly disagreed back into one that was Torah based and thus more pure and godly Ezra and his group returned to a functioning temple and priesthood but he instantly was met with a startling reality it's not so easy some cases perhaps it's not possible to turn back the clock especially when it comes to spiritual and religious matters. Here in America, we baby boomers often reminisce reminisce about the happy days kind of lives we led as children of the 50s. Now, some 60 years later, we often talk about how much we wished our grandchildren could live in that kind 
of carefree society and, and, and stable environment. And how we too would also like to return to those simple and, and gentler days. But the world has evolved. It's evolved so much that while reinstituting some aspect of those times might be possible, those remnants are mostly cosmetic, like retro furniture, drive-in theaters, and hamburger joints with car hops and jukeboxes. That's about it. Sadly, the underlying conditions simply don't exist any longer to effectively recreate what once was. Thus, believers who today realize that our faith has taken so many strange twists and turns since the time of Christ, some of those have been wrong turns that have led us away from God's Word, we've begun to recognize that although we'd like to turn back the clock, we'll not regain the heady days like when Paul or Peter or John lived. Too much water's flowed under that bridge. Thus, reform-based movements like Hebrew roots of Christianity and Messianic Judaism are today grappling with how to recover the godly idealism and directives of the Torah, all of God's word for that matter, and how much of it can be reasonably applied to 21st century secular society and to a church that while relying on Christ for salvation looks nearly exclusively to the Apostle Paul as the authority for doctrines, practices, and behavior. This is where we can learn so much from Ezra. A little bit later from Nehemiah. They had the awareness and the knowledge and the desire and the means to institute reforms. But from where the world stood in their days as compared to the days of Moses, just how much reform was actually possible despite the zealousness of a few leaders and the devotion of some of the people? Sometimes, from the human perspective, you just can't put the genie back into the bottle once he's loosed. And even if it is theoretically possible to completely reform an entire society or religion back to the, the pure and more moral ways, how much time change and pain is any given population willing to endure to get there? Let's reduce this to the matter at hand. The issue for Ezra was just how much of God's Torah could he reasonably expect to institute on the Jews of Judah considering how embedded by now were the ways of early Judaism and their everyday life and society how much pagan Gentiles had influenced the Jewish culture and how far away from God's word they already were most Jews had little to no knowledge or experience 
with Torah-based laws or living in a manner like their distant ancestors had lived. And the precise challenge that Ezra is faced with in chapters 9 and 10 must be the most emotionally gut-wrenching one imaginable. Many of the marriages and resultant families that the Jews had formed over the past century were, in God's eyes, illegitimate. Because these marriages were between His people and foreign pagans. In fact, these marriages represented fundamental unfaithfulness to the Lord. Because they directly violated the law of Moses in principle, in letter, and in spirit. And Malachi made it clear that this was an abomination that could not stand if harmony with God was to be regained and maintained. Similarly, in the year of our Lord 2014, as we look to rediscover the Torah and to flush out man-made doctrines from our faith and from our Christian institutions using the living water of the Holy Scriptures as a sort of spiritual solvent, we immediately run headlong into impediments that aren't so easily solvable by merely insisting that believers ought to obey God's laws and commandments. Ezra, in facing this very same problem with the contemporary Jewish society of Judah, saw that these illicit marriages existed at every level of society, from the priests on down. And you know, to this point, no one had seen them as anything but normal and good. But now Ezra had to take action against these unions. What might that action be? Since the law of Moses doesn't directly address this problem of what to do if the commandment against illicit marriages is violated, then Ezra had to determine the principle of the Torah laws that seemed to apply and then apply the remedy using the spirit of the law. His conclusion was the only possible solution for the hundreds, perhaps thousands, of marriages between pagan Gentiles and Jews that God plainly said was a great affront to him was to send the foreign wives along with their children away. It was similar in principle and effect as to when Abraham had no choice but to send Hagar and her son Ishmael away. Ishmael was, of course, Abraham's biological son. Just as these children that were going to be sent away were the biological children of Jewish fathers. Now multiply the pain and suffering of the Hagar situation a thousandfold in the case of the Judahites. What else is the solution to an unauthorized marriage than to dissolve the union? And yet, 
the same time, the Lord says, I hate divorce. Let's continue with Ezra. Follow his dilemma. See how he dealt with it. Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. We'll start reading at verse 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1128. At the evening offering, my cloak and tunic torn, I got up from afflicting myself, fell on my knees, spread out my hands to Adonai, my God, and said, My God, I'm ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our sins tower over our heads, our guilt reaches up to the heavens. Since the times of our ancestors, we've been deeply guilty. And because of our sins, we, our kings, our kohanim, our priests, have been handed over to the kings of the lands, to the sword, to exile, to pillage, to disgrace, as is the case today. Now for a brief moment, Adonai, our God, has shown us the favor of allowing a remnant to escape, giving us a secure foothold in this holy place in order for God to make things look brighter to us, revive us a little in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God hasn't abandoned us in our slavery, but He has caused the kings of Persia to extend grace to us, reviving us so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins and have a wall of defense in Judah and Jerusalem. But now our God, what are we to say after this? For we've abandoned your mitzvot, your commandments which you gave us through your servants, the prophets, when they said the land which you were going to in order to take possession of it is a land defiled by the uncleanness of the peoples in the lands because of their disgusting practices which have filled it with filth from one end to the other. Therefore you're not to give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. You're not to promote their peace, their prosperity ever. Only in this way will you grow strong. Enjoy the good things of the land. Leave it as a lasting inheritance to your children. Now after all that has come upon us because of our evil deeds and our deep guilt, and even so, you, our God, have punished us less than our sins deserve. You've given us a surviving remnant. Are we to break your commandments again by making marriages with the peoples who have these disgusting practices? Won't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us completely so that there would be no surviving remnant, no one who escapes? Adonai, God of Israel, you are just. Yet we've been left a surviving remnant that has escaped as is the case today. Look, we are before you in our guilt and because of it no one can stand in your presence. At the temple, with people surrounding him, Ezra sat for hours in a state of mourning and grief over what he had learned about the marriages between every strata of Jewish society and foreign pagans. It was as though he was paralyzed with depression and fear. He was just unable to process the calamity. We should first recognize that only a person well-versed in God's Word, devoted to obedience 
to the Lord and to His commandments, would even recognize that there was a problem, let alone the enormity of it. From an earthly, societal, economic viewpoint, there was nothing different on the day that the bad news was received than from the day before or the year before or the decade before. Goodness, even the priesthood had supported and indulged in these marriages to foreigners. There was no invading army. There was no pestilence or destructive earthquake or political upheaval that had just happened. To the spiritually uninitiated, everything appeared perfectly normal. So why was Ezra rocking the boat? It took Ezra courageously going against the tide of Jewish society from the lowliest field worker to the highest religious leadership to make them aware of God's great anger against them and that that anger would not cease until the situation was resolved. He wasn't just going to forget about it. Ezra had to tell the people something they didn't want to hear. They didn't expect to hear it. They, as do most members of any congregation or community, only want to hear good things from their leaders. I'm okay, you're okay. In this case, God's okay with you and you're okay with God. But as with the prophet Malachi... That wasn't Ezra's message to the people. At the time of the evening sacrifice, which is the same as the afternoon sacrifice, meaning about 3 to 4 p.m. in the afternoon, Ezra was finally able to pull himself together. So still wearing his torn garments, a traditional sign of mourning, he fell on his knees and he began to pray out loud so that the crowd gathered there could hear him. Now since Ezra was a teacher and he also carried the king's authority, the prayer was meant to be both a plea to God and instructional to the people as to the nature and the gravity of what they had done. Ezra begins by confessing guilt and not separating himself from everyone else even though he wasn't one who had taken a foreign wife, at least as far as we know. In other words, his prayer was on behalf of the congregation. The congregation of Judah. And Ezra counted himself as among them. Therefore, he was guilty by association. And this is such an important principle for us to understand. I want to take just a moment to reiterate it. You see, God views us and our condition before Him in two fundamental domains. First, as individuals. And second, collectively. As part of a congregation or a community or a nation. As pertains to worshipers of God today we could say that salvation is an individual matter. So God's judgment in that regard will be person by person by person. However, we're also members of congregations, of communities, 
of nations. So there is another category of judgment that God renders depending upon our membership to a collective. Thus we can be saved. We can be personally in harmony with God. But we can also be part of a congregation, community, or nation that is not in harmony with God. And that collective may be judged for punishment or even destruction. And as a member of that particular collective, we're going to suffer collateral damage regardless of our spiritual status. While our spiritual lives remain assured by our salvation, the outcome of our physical lives has much to do with the collectives that we're part of. Thus, each person can have salvation based on personal trust in God without regard to the collective. But once we're saved, we need to carefully consider the collectives we are part of because the collective presents a different domain that God judges separately from the domain of individual persons. There are collectives we choose. Religions, denominations, individual congregations, even communities, and collectives that we usually don't choose, such as our nation. And the Lord, the Lord urges us to distance ourselves from collectives of any kind that we know He finds wrong-minded, unacceptable, or wicked. But we are especially responsible for the ones we choose. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Don't yoke yourselves together in a team with unbelievers. For how can righteousness and lawlessness be partners? What fellowship does light have with darkness? See, sometimes we have the freedom to make a change. Like from Islam to Christianity. Or from one congregation to another or from one community to another. Other times we don't. It's pretty hard to change families. It's hard to change nations. It can be done, but it's hard. Thus, while as individuals... Ezra and many others of the exiles did not marry foreign women, thus did not sin against God in that way. On the other hand, they were all members of the collective called Judah. So what befell one befell all. Should God take punitive action against Judah? So Ezra acknowledging himself as equally guilty in his prayer was not merely an idealistic and loyal statement of solidarity with his people. It was true. It was real on the collective level. He was equally guilty before God. But he takes it one step further. The collective guilt he speaks of, he says, even spans generations. The guilt or better iniquities that the members of 
of Judah bear partly comes from the generations of their ancestors, including their leadership, kings and priests. And it still exists. It has to be accounted for. And it is due to this generational guilt as well as the personal guilt that Judah was exiled to Babylon in the first place. Now, while not all scholars would agree with me, I feel comfortable in telling you that the term iniquity is probably best understood as the same thing as generational sin. Essentially. In other words, when we hear the Bible speak of our sin and iniquity, the term sin is referring to the sins that we personally commit. But iniquity refers to the sins that built up over time, that follows the trail of our ancestral family line and community membership. And that ancestral line goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Because everyone, then and now, is associated to Adam and Eve. So none of us can escape without the blood of Christ to atone for our sins as well as for our iniquities that would otherwise plague us. Thus Ezra confesses that while the exile to Babylon was the result of all these inequities and that the Lord intentionally caused the Jews to be handed over to enemies, to be killed and pillaged and then removed from the land. It is that starting in verse 8, Ezra moves now from that history to current times. When he speaks about the favor of the Persian kings who succeeded Babylon, a favor that, by the way, had to be supernaturally caused, and now a divinely provided window of opportunity has opened just a bit to give the disgraced Jews a means to escape their shame, to come back to the Holy Land with a fresh start. Wouldn't we all love a fresh start? But even so, only a remnant of them even took advantage of it. Ezra refers to the fact that although the Jews rebuilt their temple, they reinstituted their priesthood, and they for 80 years been free. They've been free to return to Judah. Still, they are entirely under the control of a foreign government. The Jews' king is Artaxerxes, the Gentile king of the Persian Empire. Judah is but one of many provinces of the Persian Empire. So the Jews are citizens of a Persian Empire, not a sovereign Jewish state. So while on the one hand, the Persians are allowing Ezra liberty to revive Torah law among the Jewish people, on the other hand, it only goes so far as God's law doesn't conflict with Persian law. And until a Persian king decides, enough's enough. Now that brings us right back to the beginning of today's lesson. 
whereby the genie can't always be put back into the bottle. Yes, Ezra and Judah have great religious freedom for now. However, there are constraints that exist that can't be exceeded because the reality of their circumstance is powerful and it's out of their control. Therefore, there are and there will be parts of the Torah law that Ezra and his cohorts will not be able to reinstitute because even though it's technically doable, they are these, some of these laws are in opposition to Persian law. And because the new Persian society is going to fight against some of these proposed changes. Hammer and tong. And why are Judah and Ezra in this frustrating position that will not permit absolute purity of obedience to the Torah laws even if they try? Because the personal sins of the Jews, hear me on this, the personal sins of the Jews as well as the iniquities of their father have altered history. Now the conditions they live under won't allow for it. Does God excuse it then? Was it then not okay? Or rather it became okay to do part, not do parts of the law that the Jews couldn't do because of their circumstances. The circumstances of their exile. Now a return to this messed up society and religion. Hardly. All that happens is that the sins and the inequities continue to pile up higher and higher and higher because they aren't observing all the law because they can't. Because they cause the conditions for this untenable situation by their sinning. They can't fix it simply because they change their minds. Truly the definition of a vicious circle. And yet, God doesn't want to destroy His people or so completely discourage them that they quit trying to reform and to do what's righteous. So it says, verse 8, in order for God to make things look brighter to us, to, to revive us a little in our slavery, He arranged for their return to Judah and a measure of religious freedom. That is, in His mercy and grace, the Lord did and will help His people not punish them as much as he should, even show them favor in some things. However, the slavery, meaning that they remain as subjects of a Persian empire, will not be lifted. They shall be given comfort in their slavery. They're not going to be relieved from their slavery. At least not in the near future. So, here comes another God principle. That is so very practical, practical, but one which is hard to put into practice. How often in our personal distress we pray to the Lord not to change us, but to change our circumstances. Isn't that true? Oh God, if only I wasn't poor, then I could obey you and tithe. So please change my circumstances. Lord, if only I wasn't so miserable in my marriage, 
then I could obey you and serve you as I should. So change my circumstances. Father, if only my business would do better, then I wouldn't have to disobey you and cheat on my taxes. So change my circumstances. I'm not telling you that the Lord doesn't sometimes change circumstances. However, those circumstances will almost never change until we ask the Lord first to change us. And ironically, once He changes us, suddenly we aren't a victim of our circumstances anymore. We're simply a victim of our own evil inclinations that believes we found a loophole in God's commandments and an excuse not to obey because life just isn't how we want it. The circumstance fades when the focus of our problems becomes us. In verse 10, still in prayer, Ezra says that the Jews, as a people, have abandoned God's commandments, of course, meaning the Mosaic Covenant, the Law of Moses. So after outlining what Judah and Israel did in the past to merit God's discipline, he expresses the particular unfaithfulness that has Ezra so worried and upset. And he goes on to speak of the prophets having spoken uh, these laws that they have been now blatantly violated. What we should understand is he's not speaking of prophets giving the law because everybody knew it was Moses. But rather it was about what the prophets had to say in later times when the people were disobeying. There are no direct direct scriptural quotes used here. Rather, Ezra speaks a kind of summary of what the prophets warned and instructed against in terms of spirit and application. Now we talked last time about how Ezra completely construed his purpose and journey to Judah in the context of a second exodus that mimicked the original exodus from Egypt. So, he constructed and organized the group that he led back to Judah in the same way that the original Exodus journey was constructed with priests, Levites, and 12 groups of lay people. So, using instructions given to the Israelites from the first Exodus, Ezra says that the people were told that the reason God was giving them the land of Canaan for their own and expelling the current inhabitants is because the Canaanites' uncleanness defiled the land. It was because of their disgusting practices that filled Canaan with their pagan filth from one end to the other that God wanted them out. Therefore, Israel was certainly not to intermarry with them whether it was Hebrew sons to pagan women or Hebrew daughters to pagan men. Even more, they were not to make peace treaties with these nations or to help them prosper in any way. God wanted rid of them. And if they did as the Lord commanded through the prophets, then Israel would live in the land and prosper. It was a very simple formula. 
do it the way I tell you to do it and everything's going to turn out great. I mean, how can one not see what happened to Israel in times past due to their refusal to obey this explicit direction from the Lord and not connect it to modern day Israel who's currently disobeying the same instruction? Today, instead of Israel looking to God's word, seeing what happened to them in times past and believing the Lord and expelling Muslims who by definition worship other gods and therefore have no place in God's kingdom land, Israel works daily to appease and compromise in the name of mercy and and peace. They have even given them the holy temple mount for their pagan shrine and mosque. I mean, can't we see the precise parallel of Ezra's prayer in relation to this? Jews try to make good relationships with the Palestinians. Israel makes peace with the Palestinians. Israel wars with the Palestinians and then rebuilds them after they've destroyed them. Israel believes that prosperous Palestinians will lead to peaceful Palestinians. So Israel gives the enemy jobs. If Ezra were alive today, oh my goodness, Israel would never hear the end of it. And not surprisingly, Israel pays a very dear price for their folly and their rebellion. So, says Israel in verse 13, Now that I've recounted to you the history of Israel's rebellion against God, all the misery and calamity that is produced, and even after God has relented a little, given the Jews a break, here we go again. And this time, the great sin is that the Jews have married and made family of the very same people God said He wanted removed or destroyed because of their disgusting practices. The Jews did precisely the opposite of what they were supposed to do. They were to avoid all relationship with the pagan foreigners of Canaan. Instead, the Jews made the closest union humanly and spiritually possible with them. The union of marriage. It simply didn't get any worse than this. Because this sin is the worst of the worst, it gains the epithet of an abomination. That's nothing you ever want to hear from God. And one more time I'm going to point it out. The religious leadership promoted it. They even joined in these illicit unions. Now let us confront some things we don't want to hear. How might we suppose God looks at gay churches and gay marriage that is not just accepted but promoted by the leadership of several denominations. How might we suppose God looks at those Christian leaders who despise His people 
boycott their products and instead teaches their congregations to stand with Israel's enemies. Let's reduce this a little bit further. How might we suppose that God looks at Christian leaders who tell their flocks that His laws and commandments are dead and gone and obedience is a thing of the past? With Christ we can just follow our own hearts, live however we please. How might God look upon a nation that commits millions of abortions every year and counts it as a good and virtuous thing? Highly recommended. How might God look upon a nation that says homosexuality and transgender is not only normal, it's a thing to be desired and admired? How might God look upon a nation whose leaders find Israel repulsive, but the terrorists who attack them justified? Or a nation who refuses prayer? in our schools, removes the Ten Commandments from our courts, won't even allow a nativity scene, a cross, or a Star of David in a public park. How do you suppose that's going to go? Bottom line, be careful about the leadership and the collectives you choose to put yourself under because God holds you responsible for it. It doesn't matter whether that choice begins with your circle of friends, your family, a congregation, a community you choose to live in, or a nation you find yourself in. Luke 14.26 If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, and his own life, besides he can't be my disciple. So as Ezra concludes his prayer, he rhetorically asks, since all these, they've done all these things, knowing they shouldn't, knowing what God did long ago, and in the not so recent past, to punish His people severely for their obedience, and if despite all this, Jehovah has shown a little bit of mercy and grace, so that at least there'd be a surviving remnant, an opportunity for that remnant to return, repent, and reform, doesn't it follow that further rebellion will lead to God completely destroying even the remnant? Apparently, not yet. For these illicit marriages among the returned exiles have gone on for a long time, and they're still alive. But just because the Lord hasn't killed them doesn't mean they're not guilty. They are guilty. They have pretty much nothing to lean on to beseech the Lord for another chance. The people have been forewarned. They've been prepared that something awful is about to happen soon. Because this situation of illicit marriage unions isn't going to stand. Next week we'll begin chapter 10. And we'll watch as Ezra decides that the only possible solution is to dissolve that which God finds aberrant before him. No matter the societal disruption, the immense and long-term heartache, and in a certain sense, the unfairness of it 
to the many who are innocent products of these illicit unions.